sort of that backwards. Hello and welcome to our evening Dhamma session. Tonight we are looking at those of you following along with st on the study side we're looking at Majjhima Nikaya number 112 but that's not really important that's just for reference I'd rather not again as I've said before pay too much attention to the actual sutta and spend more time <coughs> focused on the teaching in the sutta. Especially as it relates to meditators. I'm hoping to encourage our stalwart adventurers here in our center on their journey towards self-understanding. They're doing the hard work, so blessings to them. Tonight's topic is enlightenment. It's an interesting topic, should be of interest to everyone here. If you're not interested in, enlighten in enlightenment, I'm not sure why you're listening or watching or meditating. But enlightenment can be scary. It can be confusing. It can be unfathomable. can be misunderstood quite difficult to know if someone else is enlightened it's quite easy to misunderstand overestimate yourself as being enlightened, someone else as being enlightened. It's easy to say, right? Many people have said it, or things similar, about themselves or others, not just in Buddhism. I think it's fair to say that a lot of people come to Buddhism not interested in enlightenment. So you might be surprised at the statement, hey, if you're not interested in enlightenment, what the heck are you doing here? This is, I think, a part of the misunderstanding. It's uh, at once placed on too high of a pedestal, and at the same time it's often misunderstood as being something less than it is. So being put on a high pedestal 
we see it as something scary. I don't, I'm, that's not really why I'm here. I just want to feel better. I just want to know myself better. I just want to be happy. I just want peace. But you see, enlightenment is, of course, all of these things. Maybe feel better part is a bit of a mis bit misleading because I mean it's a bit low, right? Feeling better is problematic because it it implies a desire for a certain type of feeling. It implies feeling worse. And if you have feeling worse, you've got a problem because better is not permanent. But in a, in another sense, it is all about feeling better in the sense of no longer suffering. An enlightened, an enlightened person feels better in the sense of not having all those bad feelings, not having all those stresses and sadnesses, depressions, anxiety, and all anger, all these things. Those kind of feelings are gone. It's often seen as scary because of our views that there are many things worth clinging to. Enlightenment, but I, I really like clinging to things. I think it's good that I want this and want that. If I didn't want things, could I really be happy? Scary. And I think it's misunderstood and, and maligned in, in many ways because it's seen as something or misunderstood in the sense of thinking that well, enlightenment is someone who is calm, anyone who is calm and peaceful, and maybe someone who is omniscient or, or so on. It's related to knowledge and wisdom, of course. And it's related to calm and peace, of course. But it's easy for someone to enter into a state of calm and think they've become enlightened. Likewise, it's it's easy to speak and, and even think in ways that seem very enlightened, but still act and, and feel in ways that are contrary to that. So the, my idea, my hope, I think one of the important things to goals to attain in talking about enlightenment is to help to bring everything down to earth, at once making it more approachable, but at the same time hopefully even more profound. It should be profound and profoundly simple. So it shouldn't be something scary or, or unattainable. But it shouldn't be something else. It shouldn't be because you're happy all the time, laughing and smiling. It shouldn't be because you're calm all the time. It should be something very specific, where we should understand it for the th specific thing that it is.
It's at once very specific and very natural. The best thing I think you can say about the Enlightenment, one of the best things, for especially for a, a broad audience, is that it's natural. And that's sort of what I think what this sutta is, should, should impress upon people. Now it's not something hard to understand really. It's not something scary either. It's something challenging. It challenges all of our wrong assumptions about reality. We're the ones who have it all wrong. I mean, the, an important quality for a beginner meditator especially is to admit that they might be wrong about quite a lot of things. If someone is unable to accept that they might be wrong and to suspend their beliefs, to bring their beliefs into question, not to discard them or to say, I'm all wrong about everything. I'm not asking you to give up your beliefs, but to, to see them as that, as beliefs, to ask yourself where they come from, and to be clear that you should only really, you can only really be sure of beliefs that are based on observation, based on evidence. We don't even think very highly of beliefs that are based on logic or reason, because if you're, if you're, unless you're a perfect logical machine, you easily get that wrong as well. Logic is tricky thing. You can't depend on your own reason and say, well, I thought about it a long time and this is what I came up with. How do you know that's enough? How do you know you're not just deluding yourself? It's very hard to know what is true. Some people will say, of course, it's impossible. So I think that relates to sort of the limits on what we consider to be important in terms of enlightenment. It's not important that you know the truth about everything, because there are many things that it's very hard or even impossible to know the truth about. But there are some things that it's actually quite simple. You might not say easy, because it takes a lot of work to retrain our minds away from our delusions and, and even our adherence to concepts and, you know, like thinking in terms of me sitting in this room with all of you. It's all concepts in my mind. Just to retrain, retrain your mind to even be able to observe what's real about this situation. Me sitting in this room with all of you in front of a computer with an audience and the internet. What's real about all that? right away the answer for most people would be well all of that's real what's not real about it when I think about the internet all these people I get an image of people sitting at their homes in front of their computer maybe maybe they're smiling maybe they're frowning maybe they're typing up some angry reply to something I said or or astute rebuttal of something I said perhaps 
that's only a vision in my mind. I don't know that there's anyone watching. There might all be robots. Someone has an army of robot of bots tuned in. Forty seven we have forty seven people watching on the internet. Maybe none of them are real. Maybe none of you are real. Then we can turn to this room. How do I know that you're real? I might be sitting here alone in this house having delusions that there are three people sitting in front of me. Those, those thought experiments aren't that important, but they do illustrate an important point, that these are things that it's hard to know, if, if it's even possible. And they illustrate the point that those, those things are really only activities in my mind. I assume that there are people sitting here, I assume that there are people listening on the internet, be funny if it turned out that I was just deluded sitting here and actually doing nothing. That's probably not the case. But it's not as real as the fundamental mechanics of the experience. I'm seeing things, no question, seeing. What am I seeing? Eh, not quite sure. Not a hundred percent certain. But I'm seeing. I'm hearing. I'm hearing my own voice. I'm hearing people in this room as they move. I'm hearing computer fan. Smelling. Maybe I smell something, taste, and so on. So these are the things that we try to know. This is how what enlightenment is all about. And so the, I think the first step towards understanding enlightenment is to get a sense of what it's all about. Enlightenment has nothing to do with people, places, and things. It doesn't, it doesn't involve those things because they don't have any basis in reality. It's not that we're wrong that there's people sitting here or, or whatever. But that it's not ultimately real. It's, it's an extrapolation. I mean, it's not the fundamental basics of reality. So it's not really possible, at least on a mental level, on a psychological level, which is what we mean, right? What is enlightenment all about? It's about changing your psyche. It's not about gaining theories of ato atomic energy or, or cosmology. It's about a change in your psyche, change of your mind. So psychologically, the profound changes have only to do with experience. They don't have to do with theories. Or Anytime you create a theory or ponder a theory in your mind, that's activity, that's experience. That's what's changing you. So you might postulate that my scientific investigation of the theory of gravity, well, that's enlightening me. In Buddhism, we would say to you, okay, well then examine that. Examine the state of mind when you're pondering that theory. Because that's more real than the theory. And that will tell you whether that pondering is actually enlightening you.
And I think that provides some measure of reassurance that enlightenment isn't something scary. The second, the second reason why people get turned off, I think, of enlightenment is this idea that once they un, once they hear and get this sort of a clear grasp on the idea, they start to become suspicious that all we're trying to do is become robots. We're just trying to become emotionless, apathetic, someone said recently. Wouldn't it be a very dull life if all you did was focus on experience? I mean, I think it relates also to non-attachment. They hear about non-attachment, non-greed on anger. Well, what if I didn't get angry? What would life, how could it, how could life be at all good if I never got angry? Anger is such a part of life, right? It's one of the spices of life. Desire, if I didn't want anything, what kind of a person would I be? All of these things. In Buddhism, we would say all oh, these wrong views getting in the way of enlightenment, but it's th that doesn't really address the issue. I believe, you no know, people believe. They say, I believe this. How do you challenge that? How do you challenge the belief that enlightenment, as Buddhists conceive it, is dull, dreary, undesirable? Buddhism makes claims. We make claims not about things that you can't investigate, but claims about investigation. We make claims about what you'll find when you undertake objective investigation of reality. And reality just means ordinary reality. It's not some special kind of thing. Look at things. Study things. Such an emphasis on mindfulness. And it's become such a powerful word in the world. Someone asked me recently, what do you think about everyone's using this word mindful, just throwing it around like it's nothing? I said, well, I don't think it's such a bad thing, that's such a bad thing I mean it's good that people are talking about it the problem of course is it can be shallow potentially but I think it's great and it's a good sign that we see people I was just reading, someone sent an article recently about uh, psychologists are starting to say the same things I don't know if they're arriving at the ideas independent or if they're stealing Buddhist ideas but great, they're saying Hey, when you when you label emotions, like you're angry and you say, I'm angry, and you say, that anger, hey, that helps. And they're looking at how it works in the brain and saying, hey, this is actually a really good tool. Why is it a good tool? Because all our lives, 
well, none of our lives, very zero percent of our time has, maybe that's a little harsh, but very, very little of our time is ever spent, our time is ever spent in objective observation. And so the vast majority of our lives and our conclusions about reality are based on imperfect perception. We form conclusions, and we always have since we've been young, based not on clear understanding of reality, but based on flawed understanding, like haphazard understanding, makeshift understanding. It's not wrong like we're dumb. It's wrong that we just have no clue. So, okay, maybe this. Oh, okay, that feels okay. Let's try this. And it's like you build a house of scrap wood and, and maybe it'll stay up, I don't know. That's how our lives are built. That's the that's the un inconvenient truth about life is that most of it's haphazard, makeshift, on the fly because we didn't take time to think, we didn't, weren't generally given the time to think, we're indoctrinated in so many different ways by other people who have makeshift understandings about reality or even wrong understandings because they have books that have enshrined their makeshift views and their partial understandings and and we get religion it's all religion philosophy i think the philosophers probably you could put them up as the best of the best because they've actually tried you know Philosophers throughout history have always tried to be objective and to seek truth. I mean, I think there's something noble there. No matter how wrong they may have been, there, there's a. It's better than I think most religion, where people just write stuff down, write things down. Everyone just believes it. You know? Why do I believe it? Well, look, my book says so. It's a very terrible reason to believe something. But that's true. People will say, this book, this book says God is real, and God wrote it, so he must be real. <laughs> right? There are actually people, I think, who, believe, who say it, speak like that. It's maybe a bit of a straw man for most theists, but not all. So, we're, so the reason why mindfulness is so powerful is because it's finally, it's it's totally new. It's a breath of fresh air. It's like a slap in the face or a bu bucket of cold water, maybe. Not a slap, but it's like a bucket of cold water over your head. Sometimes it can feel like a slap when you're here doing intensive practice. It's not very comfortable. But it should be a wake-up call. And it can be so powerful and so inspiring when you start to be mindful and, and, and realize. It can also be quite scary because you oh crap, I got a lot of work to do. What have I done? How did I, where did I go wrong?
is breathtaking when you or it's refreshing when you start to see and start to gain the, the tools and the abilities to see things just as they are, not as I say they are or as you think they are, but to put all of that aside and, and see things as they are. It's very wonderful that, hey, wait, he's right, I am seeing things as they are. It's not just fancy words, it actually is how things are. Okay, I don't have to believe this strange guy in the strange robes. I can I can get this. I got this. I can do this. So anyway, I've talked quite a bit and I haven't even started on the sutta. But it's not much. There's not that much in the sutta. As with much of the Buddhist teaching, it's all quite simple. And power is how simple it is. It's designed to help us reject all the complexities in our mind, all this craziness is, you know? That's how, how Buddha, how the Buddha must have looked at the world. You just see all these people living in shacks, basically. By shacks, I mean their views and their, their it's a metaphor. Everyone's living in hovels. And here he has this well-designed system. He can help people build on a strong, stronger foundation. A real house that they can live in, so to speak. must have looked crazy with people at all sorts of crazy designed houses. He said, look, it's simple. Like this, like this, like this. So, the, the, the content of this sutta is about what it's like to be enlightened. Because they, they bring up this this um, hypothetical person enlightened being and suppose someone says I'm enlightened and you can investigate you can ask yourself you can say to yourself okay you know and, they, and there's they say there's four kinds of expression that are rightly proclaimed one speaks of, well, it's actually just the senses. What you see, you say, I saw this. What you've seen, you say, I saw this. What you hear, you say, I've heard this. What you sensed, I mean, smell, taste, felt, you say, I've sensed this. And what you've thought, you say, I've thought that. What you've cognized in the mind. And what that means is, you don't make any grand claims like I'm enlightened. I'm enlightened. And what does that even mean? You don't um, put up any theories or something. You say things as they are. What is it that you've seen? So the question is, what is it that you've seen? What is it that you've heard? What is it that you've cognized that makes you say, hey, I'm enlightened? How do you know? How do you see? You know, oh, sorry. How do you know and how do you see? Meaning, see with with vision, with what wisdom? In regards to 
the senses here so that you can say hey I'm not I'm, I'm enlightened I have no uh, no problems left in my mind And so the reply is that in regards to all these things, in regards to things, things seen and heard and so on, in regards to experiences really, I abide unattracted, unrepelled, independent, detached, free, dissociated with a mind rid of barriers. I don't know what barriers means exactly. Let's look it up. Yeah, I don't get it, but with um, nothing blocking in our mind, right? Something like that. So I, I want to take a bit of time on this because this is where one of the problems comes, right? Hey, wait a minute. Unattracted, unrepelled. That sounds a lot like that robot. Detached. Uh-oh. I don't want to be detached. It's an insult. You hear people say, it's a, not an insult, it's a criticism so detached I feel so detached from life that's no good what about passion what about inspiration what about motivation ambition what kind of world would it be if people didn't have these things how would we sell advertising We wouldn't be able to sell products because people wouldn't want them. But it says, well, that's not my problem. No, I mean, it's just because things are the way they are. And just because they've been this way doesn't mean they're right. It undermines, I mean, it, it, it claims to have to provide truth that undermines all of society, all of humanity, really. Even be the idea of being human. And that's hard, right? We have, we're such, have such a vested interest in being human. We always have. I'd say that's why we're born as humans. We, we had a keen interest in being born. And then when we were in the womb, we had a keen interest in the formation of that fetus. And then when we were born, we had such a keen interest in all the things from growing up to getting school and getting a job. And if we didn't like school, didn't like getting a job, then it was keen aversion towards these things. But we have all this, such a push and pull. We get caught up in it. So he doesn't, we don't, the, the, the way of the teaching is not to say, 
Um, an enlightened being is unattracted and unrepelled. The things that you see, you should not, you should not cling to. You should be detached from. That's not the way of teaching. This is why the question is asked: How do you know and how do you see? He says, knowing thus, seeing thus. It was knowing thus and seeing thus that through not clinging my mind is liberated from defilement. So again, it's this claim, the claim that if you look, this is what you'll see. If you look objectively, this is what you'll become. That not by believing me or believing Buddhism, not by even pondering your beliefs, I believe this is right, I believe that is right. Not necessary. You don't even have to threaten those beliefs. Just throw them away. I mean, not throw them away, but when they, they're not even something we have to question. We're not interested in that. You want to keep those beliefs? It's not even up for issue. The issue is what you can see. The claim is when you look and you see, those beliefs will just be have disappeared because they were wrong. Or some of them were wrong. Some of our beliefs turn out to be wrong. Wrong in the sense that you know, I believe this is good for me, it turns out it's not. I believe this leads to happiness, it turns out it doesn't. There's no question of whether you should keep it or debate that belief. Just look and see. And any belief that is contrary to that doesn't even have to, you don't even have to ask anymore. You'll never have to doubt, is this right, is that right? What about some things? And so the claim is made that when I look and see, when I when I know and see, I become unattracted and unrepelled. I mean, an Im important, powerful aspect of this statement is that it describes an ordinary state. It describes the state that we all think we're in most of the time. If I'm not angry at someone or craving something. I'm really just sitting here. What are you doing? Oh, just sitting. Sitting around. We think we're in state all the time. Living free, independent, unattracted, unrepelled. Until we begin to be mindful. And then we see how attached we are to things. How little time we spend sitting with the sitting being sitting with body and mind usually the body is sitting but the mind is somewhere else even when we do touch things with our mind immediately we go off into what we think about it and how we can get it or how we can chase it away something we don't like we're already thinking about how can I get rid of this person we're not present we're not here we spend so much of our time caught up in attraction and repulsion. And so we're dependent. We are 
subject to disturbance, upset by all the things that we experience where we are vulnerable and many things, sentient and non-sentient will take advantage of that people will take advantage of it, it's how they manipulate it's how they aggravate reality will take advantage of that, not literally, but Reality will cause us so much suffering. It's too hot, it's too cold. I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. Pain in my back, in my legs, in my head. I have constipation, I have diarrhea, I have a cold, I have a flu, I'm sick, I'm old, I'm dying. We're vulnerable to so many things, to all these things and others. Vulnerable to being beaten, vulnerable to being abused. Be simply because we are not present. And that's the power, that's the, this, the greatest power of being mindful is that you become invulnerable. If you're truly mindful, no, no one can do anything to hurt you. No one or no thing. I'm going to take a pause here for a second. Because I think we might have the problem with the voice. Why is it happening again? What did I do last time to fix it? Right, but it's didn't I didn't change it back. Well, I'm sure I didn't change it back. I can see if it's changed back by itself. Hmm, hasn't changed back. It's a bug. Something's wrong. We thought we fixed it. It looks like we haven't. I assume my voice is, is oh, we're hearing it fine. Oh, some people are saying my voice sounds fine. <laughs> Do I sound different tonight? Maybe I just sound different. That's funny. People have said that before. My voice has changed, I think. It changes as you get older, though. I mean, that happens. People watch my old videos and say, Hey, what happened to your voice? The voice on the stream is just a little choppy, not bad, but I don't have that low voice anymore, right? 
Sorry to interrupt this. I apologize. This isn't very professional, but I never made any promises of being professional. Your voice sounds fine. You're speaking very softly. I'm not speaking... Oh, maybe. <laughs> You're probably right. But... Um, I think it also has something to do, let's see, no it doesn't, um, that's no good, okay, Hopefully it will be a little louder now. I think it's louder now. But there might be more static in the background as a result. Hello, hello. It's deeper. Why does it sound super deep? Lots of static, better, sound great. All right. It's funny, you know, because it doesn't, it's not that important, but it's distracting, I think, and confusing to some. Why is your voice changed? All right. Shall we get into the sutta? We've already started, right? So we did the first one. In regards to what is experienced, anything one experiences. And that this first one really is the, over, is the basis for the rest of them. Right? They're, they're related. These aren't all distinct. Um, because the next one is the five aggregates, which really are based on experience. So then the next question is, okay, there are these five aggregates of clinging that we've talked about before. How do you see in regards to them? How do you see in regards to form, physical form? What, how do you know and how do you see? It's a good question for someone if they want to say they're enlightened. Well, tell us about this. Tell us about form then. How do you see? Not what do you think, but how do you see? Do you see anything about it? If you can't answer that question, you don't see anything about it. Well, not enlightened yet. And then feelings, pain, pleasure, calm. Uh, your perceptions, your thoughts, your consciousness. How do you see in regards to these things? And the, the expression in English, the translation here we have, is that all of these things are feeble, fading away and comfortless, having known them to be thus. With the destruction, the fading away, the giving up of craving, of attraction and clinging regarding these things. Of mental standpoints, the giving up of mental standpoints, adherences and underlying tendencies regarding five aggregates 
have understood that my mind is liberated. This is how one rightly speaks, if one were to say such a thing. If one were to speak about enlightenment. Having known them to not be the way we thought they were. These five are pointed out as five types of things that we cling to. We talk about clinging, we talk about what it is that we desire. There's five types of things, some physical things. We're caught up in the body. The body is great, right? I can do all sorts of things with the body. It's so wonderful. I feel good. But we suffer, suffer from the body. We spend a lot of time avoiding suffering, spend a lot of energy, put a lot of energy into it. We try to eat well in order to avoid sickness, we try to exercise in order to avoid sickness. Not to speak of all the effort that we put into looking good, right? How we worry about we're too fat, we're too thin, my muscles aren't big enough, I'm going bald, my teeth are not straight, they're turning yellow. It's a big thing now, apparently everyone wants their teeth to be white. Not because it's unhealthy to have yellow teeth, just I want white teeth. How stressful it is all these things when you get caught up in it's feeble feeble fading away and comfortless yes meditators start to it's very hard to meditate because it's not very comfortable and you think wait a minute why what's going on here why is meditation so much more awful than my ordinary life so it's easy to run away it's easy for easy. It's common for people to want to have thoughts of running away because ordinary life is so much more comfortable. It's very hard to see the truth. That ordinary life is all about running away. Right? It's comfortable. Yeah, if you're lucky, it can be comfortable. Running away can be comfortable as long as you got somewhere to run away to and then again run away and run away as long as you can keep running and just wait until you get backed into a corner and you can't run anymore of course that happens and not to mention the fact that running away is a very unpleasant way to live it's unpleasant I mean facing facing your problems facing reality not the problems facing experience head-on it's more uncomfortable in the beginning. It's more uncomfortable than running away. Just like withdrawing from drugs is more uncomfortable than keeping to take drugs. Really exactly the same. We don't want things to be this way. This is because we're addicted to things being a different way. Why meditation is so difficult? Because it's basically withdrawal. It's forcing yourself to experience things that you'd much rather and much more quickly run away from.
It's not that there's anything wrong with it or wrong with those experiences. It's that we're addicted. We have addictions to things being a certain way. And so through seeing that mm, these things that I cling to, these things that I'm addicted to, the body, our feelings, pleasure and so on, they're not satisfying. They're not happiness. Don't conduce. They're not comfort. They're not comforting. They're comfortless. That's a very interesting word to use. Comfortless. Which means we have to keep running. We have to be constantly chasing after the next high, the next hit of pleasure. Dopamine or oxytocin or whatever these chemicals in our brain anything to get the chemical to give us a little bit of peace for a moment and then off running again that's what's going on for the meditators hey I can't get my daily my hits of oxytocin uh, hits of uh, dopamine or whatever Where are my drugs? So that's the five aggregates. Uh, then the six element, the six, uh, the six elements. The six elements is interesting. It's really just another way of looking at things. The earth element, the air element. But what's important about all these different ways of looking at reality? The five aggregates first, and now the six elements. Next, it's going to be six senses. Is that we have all we have specific views about all of these wrong views you know, or our or makeshift views not entirely wrong all the time but imprecise views that aren't based entirely on observation which is all that we're trying to do we're not saying Buddhism is better than everything else we're just saying nothing beats views that are based on pure objective observation. And most of our views are not based on pure objective observation. Some are partial observation, imprecise observation. That's all. So the six elements is the four earth, air, water, and fire, which is really just hardness and softness, tension and the opposite of tension, uh, heat and cold and cohesion. And the fifth is space. So when we talk about six elements, we're referring as well to what's in between physical things uh, or, or even extension in the sense of things having size, <coughs> space. You know. And the sixth is consciousness. So another way of talking about reality is these six things. This is, these six are a description of reality on a basic level. And so in regards to these six things, how do you know and how do you see? And he says, well, I treat the earth element as not self, so hardness, uh, heat, um, and all of the six elements, space, consciousness, as not self, with no self based on it. Those are distinct, so 
The problem is not just that we don't see the earth element as self. The problem is that we have things that were based on the physical. This body. This body is really just made up of experiences of hardness, softness, tension, and so on. Heat and cold. That I then see as self. Hey, this body is me, is mine. And we're not interested in whether it's some theory of whether it is or not. The point is that the belief, the belief and the the idea that this is me, this is mine, leads to a lot of problems. It's considered to be unenlightened, both because it's problematic and because it's false. It has no basis in reality. It's not it's not obvious or no it's not evident from observation you can't look at reality and say hey there's the, there's me that's mine it doesn't doesn't work like that so it's not about is there a self isn't there a self those are not really good questions good questions is well is this self is this me is this mine that's a better question because you look and see, and what you'll see is they're just experiences. They're just a part of experience. They're just phenomena that arise and cease. With the destruction fading away, cessation giving up, and relinquishment of attraction clinging based on these things. Of mental standpoints, it's repeating, it's a repetition of the last one. Of endurances, underlying tendencies based on the earth element and so on I've understood that I'm liberated my mind is liberated hmm? small distinction and the last section is the six senses which in a sense we've already dealt with in the beginning but seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking but it's another way of looking at reality as being the six senses because ultimately there are only six kinds of phenomena there's seeing, things that are seen, things that are heard, and so on so six kinds of experience, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking these are called the doors of perception, the doors of experience, the doors to reality everything comes through these doors or everything is these doors really And so they say, well, how do you see in, in regards to these six? Most people would say, well, I'm seeing, I'm hearing, and so on. He says basically the same thing. I'm not going to go over it again, but it's basically giving up desire and so on. But it's giving up not because you you consciously say, I no longer want, I'm not going to want this anymore. It's mainly because you see that seeing is just seeing. You see how, the, how it works. The mind makes a connection. We wonder about beauty, right? They say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's actually not. You know, the eye doesn't find anything beautiful. Beauty is in the mind of the beholder. It's after the fact. There's nothing beautiful about this or about that. 
there's nothing pleasing or displeasing but we gain these connections through habit and that's all there's no rationale behind our likes or dislikes I like this kind of food I don't like that kind of food I think this is beautiful I think that is ugly this taste, this smell this sound I like this kind of music, I hate that kind of music, all this. There's no rationale behind it, which is a claim, but it's something you can investigate. And so our description, our explanation of what you're going to see, you can verify it, is that you're going to see that all of these are meaningless and stressful, that there's a lot of stress involved, because again, it's these push and pull, like and dislike, never satisfied, always wanting. Happiness depends on other things. It's always going to be disappointed because things are inconstant, unpredictable, uncontrollable. It's not a very good way to find happiness, and that's what you'll see. It's not a theory, it's something that you'll see for yourself. You'll become less inclined towards it because, oh, yes, this is not really making me happy. I'm really quite uncomfortable with all this push and pull. So you'll let go. The last section is relates to it's an interesting question to ask in regards to this being basically. In regards to this what is the word? This body. In regards to this body with its consciousness and all of its um aspects. How does how do you know and see such that there is no eye making, mind making, or underlying tendency to conceit? How do you know and see that you can say that all of these things are eradicated? No more ahankara, mamankara, and no more mana, mananusya. So these are three good descriptions of how people cling to self and get caught up in self and as a result have a lot of problems because then it's my problem, it's my pain it's my emotion it's my life it's my ambitions my thing that I made and built and did and we get attached to these things and then we feel self-conscious about them are they good, are they bad we feel beholden to them, I, I have to keep doing this because this is who I am I have an image to maintain and so on my image is very very problematic having to keep up an image of who you are I want to look bad so ahangara I am, this is I, the idea of I, mamankara, this is mine, my body, my things, my friends, my family, and conceit, I am good, I am bad, I am smart, stupid, wise, unwise, 
enlightened, unenlightened. I am a sotapanna, I am a sakadagami, I am this, I am that. Even a sotapanna can have conceit. They get conceited about being a sotapanna, it's possible. And so on. Even an anagami can have conceit, which is concern. So his answer is actually quite different. He talks about becoming a monk. He said, I was, he says, when I lived at home, I was ignorant. Let's find the Pali because it's a very good statement. Pube aga agaria buto samano avidasu samano, sorry, samano avidasu ahosin. Ignorant, yeah. I was an ignorant person. Or an ignorant mind, maybe is what it's saying. No. When I was living, when I had a house. Anyway. I was ignorant. And I mean, hopefully that's one of the things, I mean, that's what we really hope to, that a meditator gains. And they realize what they were ignorant about, that they, 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 they gained something in terms of knowledge and vision to say that, yes, this has taught me something about myself. Then the Tathagata or his disciple taught me the Dhamma. On hearing the Dhamma, I got faith. I became convinced in conviction about it. Yay, this sounds good. This is important. It's important to have faith. If you didn't have faith, you wouldn't have come here. You wouldn't even be tuning in to my talks. It's not about like faith in terms of blind faith or something like that. He's our teacher, so we have to listen to everything he says. It's, hey, what he's saying makes sense. That's faith. That's the wrong word, maybe conviction or confidence. It's a state of mind that's important, because if you don't have it, you'll never engage in the things that you well, are confident of, confident about. Once you're confident, then you'll engage in them. You'll do those things. And then I thought, wow, living at home, it's not easy. What if I went off to a meditation center in Ontario, in Canada, it doesn't actually say that, but something like that. No, suppose I shave off my hair and beard, put on a robe and become a monk. And become homeless. Leave the home life. Become homeless. Of course, you could do that in India. There was better weather there than here. And then abandoning fortune, abandoning friends and family and so on. I left home. And then it goes on and on and talks about the path of enlightenment until finally I saw the four, four Noble Truths. This is where we actually mention the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha, you know, this person, this hypothetical person is saying, I saw the Four Noble Truths. This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. And this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. 
why these are the four noble truths is because they're all that's important they're the key criteria for enlightenment you can see whatever you want you can experience whatever you want if you don't see clearly these four things you've missed the point because you haven't solved suffering you haven't solved the true problem of suffering in order to solve it you have to see what suffering is you have to give up cause of suffering you have to experience the cessation of suffering and so as a result you have to follow the path the path that leads there if you can't say that you have that that was the path because I followed it and became free from suffering then you haven't become enlightened you missed something your idea of enlightenment is incomplete that's what the Four Noble Truths are, that's why they are what they are. And then when I knew and saw this, then my mind was liberated from the taints, and I could, knew that I was liberated. Birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what, has been what had to be done has been done. Enlightenment is when you know for yourself you've done everything that needs to be done there's nothing else to do so there that's uh, wow that's an hour on enlightenment thank you all for being patient and staying tuned in even though the reviews of the sound are still mixed as long as you can understand it I suppose that's most important and thank you all here for your practice and continuing on the journey. I wish all the best to all of you. Have a good night.